Since time immemorial, indigenous people have lived, traveled, and traded in the Puget Sound region. The Donation Land Act of 1850 to encourage westward expansion allowed American settlers to claim these traditional native lands. The original terms of the Medicine Creek Treaty were inadequate and ultimately unaccepted by tribal leaders, resulting in war. The Indigenous Voices podcast is an extension of the award-winning Puget Sound Treaty War Panel series from Fort Nisqually Living History Museum. podcast advances tribal voices in the telling of Puget Sound history and shares tribal knowledge and expertise with wider audiences. In our second episode, we ask our panelists how they first learned about the Puget Sound Treaty War, and we discuss how the non-native telling of the war has shifted over time. If you haven't yet, be sure to listen to part one. Hello, my name is Warren King George. I'm an enrolled member of the Muckleshoot Indian tribe on my father's side. And on my mother's side, I descend from the Upper Skagit tribe. My name is Charlotte Bash. I am a Puyallup tribal member. I also have lineage from Clatsop Nehalem on the Oregon coast. I work for the Puyallup Tribes Historic Preservation Department, um, and I'm really excited to be a part of this and bring the story to a wider audience. I'm Brandon Rainon. I'm the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer and Acting Director for the Historic Preservation Department for the Puyallup Tribe. I'm also a Puyallup Tribal member. Nancy Bullchild, Nisqually Indian Tribe Director of Archives and Tribal Historic Preservation Office tribal member and uh, tribal elder. Hi, my name is Danny Marshall and I am the current chair of the Stillicum Indian tribe. I've been working on issues supporting the cultural knowledge of our people since about 1980 and have uh, a passion for making sure that the expertise of the tribal people is shared in a good way. My name is Jennifer Ott and I'm the assistant director at historylink.org. What person, what source, what experience did you have that really helped you understand the treaty wars? Yeah, I shared a decent amount about growing up and hearing the family stories that I never really put together or connected as being treaty war stories until adulthood but I think my more formal coming to know about the treaty wars in a more formal way didn't happen until I started working for the tribe a few years back now Um, my initial role was assisting Brandon in his work as the tribal historic preservation officer so a bit more focused on cultural resources and cultural resource protection than my current role in education outreach. But one of the first projects that I assisted on was a massive effort, multi-tribe effort, to protect 
the little slice of prairie left at um, Connell's Prairie out near present day Bonnie Lake. And I was playing catch up, kind of sprinting to learn the history that I only knew bits and pieces of, figure out why this chunk of land was so important, but also trying to reconcile why if the tribes were fighting so hard for it, why is this not, land not already protected by the county, by the state? A housing developer was wanting to build a, a massive housing development on this property. This is right next to, there's a historic monument. The Muckleshoot tribe also put up a monument here acknowledging the history of the battles that took place on this prairie during the treaty wars. So I, I had to play catch up pretty quick on this history. And that's when I started connecting the dots of my own family stories that I had heard to this, this actual war that happened in the 1850s. I got to sit at the table with representatives from Puyallup. There are folks from Nisqually, from Squaxin Island, and even from Snoqualmie up north sitting down with representatives from Pierce County, from the state, and stating why it was important to protect this property. And unfortunately, the property was not protected. It didn't happen. Um, but we went out to that site and witnessed and were there to monitor archaeological excavations and research happening on the site where we literally dug up the, the pieces left by our ancestors from those battles and seeing those being on that property you can see our mountain from that that property we had our relatives from these different tribes and we all have ancestors who either fought with or against each other represented and so that was my first formal introduction and and also kind of introduction to the reality that this history is not known and really acknowledged or respected by mainstream, we'll say history keepers. The tribes are really left to make sure that this history is remembered. So that was kind of a, a rude awakening, I guess, to this history. Well, my experience um, about me learning about the war actually came about more with the flesh eye exoneration. So that kind of put in the, you know, what is this about? Because we didn't, you know, a lot of us didn't understand, you know, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? What's going on? So in that moment, you really made the time and took the time to learn how all of this led up to the war, his involvement and the exoneration came about. Having both sides of it, people really had to understand this just wasn't the tribal side that was history that was already documented. You know, they brought all that forward to say that was a wrong and we wanted it, you know, put right because of what he died for. You know, he was really an innocent man. And as you go through a lot of the other stories, news, newspapers and all of that, you see how people took sides even at that time. So a lot of the descendants really don't want to hear those stories because they're like, my family did that. But, you know, it's there. It's in writings. There's a lot of people that don't want to see that because it doesn't shed a good light on their family, but it's like, well, it wasn't you, you know, and it was a different time, but, you know, that does need to come forward with the truth. It's all documented there, so bring it out. I had an opportunity to meet with 
a very old lady in the 1980s. Her name was Erna Gunther. Erna Gunther was co-author of uh, Indians of the Puget Sound in the 1930s with Herman Haberlin. But I was saddened by the meeting. And, and there, was, there, there was some of it that I, I was still happy that I got the opportunity, but it did influence my push and desire to move forward in a more effective way because the work that she had done was not completely correct. And I, I, I was looking for an opportunity to, to, to talk with her and go through, you know, how she came up with some of the things that she had put in there. And the, the reality was though, she was pretty on in her age at the time. She was living on Whidbey Island and, and we took the ferry and traveled there. And I was so excited to have the discussion, but, but she couldn't remember anything about what she had written. <laughs> And it was like, you know, no, the book was there, but it was, there was not a place to talk about it. And I, and I, my heart just kind of broke in the fact that it's like, you know, how do I move forward with that? I mean, the legacy she left behind because she's got this text that was published is going to be there forever. And people will rely on that as a resource because it's one of the earliest pieces anybody did. We, we didn't have anthropological researchers coming to the area in the 1850s. These were people that were living here. And, you know, George Gibbs is a, is a name that comes up in our historical records, but he wasn't an expert on tracking and documenting culture. And, and so you, you miss so much because of that. So the eye-opening piece for me was that you can learn something, but, but you really need to, to go deeper into it. There, there needs to be more of the story that, there's so much that's missing that that it's just wide open what do we get little pieces i i get you know parts that were handed down in my oral history that that just talks about my ancestors were forced out of their homestead houses that were part of the uh, of what they hoped would be the next village for the stilicum people uh, they brought cannons and fired them over the house to make them leave. And that, you know, that's something I grew up with. That's not a part of the, the war, Indian war story, but it's, you know, the end result of that, that continued practice of the government to try and do whatever they could to, to eliminate any connection and ongoing history of the tribal people. That was their policy and their, and their work. And Maybe if anyone would like to speak to how have you seen the non-native perspective change over your lifetimes or what you've seen evolve in schools at any level or, you know, public history museums and that sort of thing. One of the things that has always bothered me is non-natives always think one size fits all, all tribes are the same. All tribes are not the same. There's all of these barriers you know, that are still here. And you think back then, the people that were writing the history, a lot of them weren't really living with these tribes. You know, you do have a few that, you know, went and lived with the tribes. I mean, the Pialup Nisqually book by Marion Smith, you know, she actually went in to the tribes, you know, and did her research. She just didn't observe and um, and they also tried to capture the language. You know, they tried to show you the difference you know, that there's a big difference between Blackfeet language and Lashootse language, you know, every tribe is different. You know, you can't group them all together 
and think that they were going to understand even one another, you know, but then to have the non-natives understand it and write about this, there is really no correct history to me that's been written by a lot of non-natives because um, even ones that went into the tribe, they went into certain tribes, you know, they didn't go into every tribe to say, well, you know, Blackfeet language is different, their culture is different. You know, each tribe has their own history, you know, you shouldn't just look at it and, and then start writing about it, you know, it's like, oh, I learned this about this tribe, so that must be how all tribes are. But until they're willing to go there and really study that and bring that forward, you know, we're still at the same thing. You know, like I said, that's my reference to you had the treaty wars, you had the fish wars, you know, what's next? Because people don't understand. They don't take the time, make the time to go back and do the research. Until they get back to the basics and all of that happens, you're not really understanding what really happened to tribes and all the differences that happened to tribes, you know? So it's not pretty, you know, yeah, go do a research on when they went to these internment camps, you know, what happened there? What happened when you wiped everybody out, you know, these tribes out with smallpox and all these diseases, you know, what happened to the tribal people? And there's reasons behind all of this stuff, but nobody really wants to go back and dig out what happened at the beginning. And like I said, just the basics of, these stories that need to be told, even with tribal people, native people, you know, there's that question. They're like, how do I find out this information? You know, we get those all the time. So if it's hard for them to do as a tribal person, you know, you can only imagine what it's like for a non-native to kind of work the system. And that's why I always tell them, you know, tribes have websites, go to the website and do your research. I've gone through several presidents <laughs> in my history of time that, that every time a new president comes along, we, we see maybe uh, new work being done. Bill Clinton was still running for office before he was elected president. He had a young native person stand up in an audience at a school and say, Mr. Clinton, what are you going to do about the tribes that, aren't, that are still not being recognized by the federal government? And, and he said, I have no idea. I don't even know what you're talking about, but I'm going to find out. And he did. You know what? He got elected and, and he invited all the tribal people to come back to the White House and build a relationship. And that's part of the history that drove me forward. But that, you know, it, it still got turned over to the next president and, and to the next president and to the next president. And our current president is, is reaching out again. But the policy that guides our relationship with the federal government still ends up in this one thing. You go ahead, send a letter to the president, relate it to tribal history and the importance of some activity related to tribal relations with the government. And what will happen is they'll send that to the Bureau of Indian Affairs, it, even if, though it's a letter to the president. Hey, uh, yeah, we got this letter forwarded to us uh, about six months ago, and we're just following up on it now. And and it's like, oh, yeah, guess what? That guy's not even in office anymore. <laughs> I'll, I'll just leave it at that. It's 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 a difficult process and and one that 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 we have to all make an effort to be a part of in order to to bring new knowledge, new information and new light to the subject. I think we have to acknowledge the time that we are in uh, on a global scale, a national scale here. 
in that the treaty wars panel and conversations around the treaty wars that I have seen happening on in other institutions, in the education system, I think are really coming out of this larger pressure to acknowledge those underrepresented, undershared um, histories and perspectives. That's been, a, I think, a huge shift just in the last two, three years. For the last many decades, we've seen more emphasis put on teaching tribal histories and stories and perspectives or stories from other communities. But in just the last couple of years, there's been this huge societal shift to talk about these other stories that we haven't talked about. While I think this is super excited and, and we're trying, at least I know here at Puyallup, so hard to ride this wave. I do think there's a little sense of urgency that can be damaging or pro problematic. If not, if these topics aren't approached with a little bit of like respect and understanding and the way that these topics are approached, even if it's with good intentions, are approached with these underlying subconscious ideas that the non-native perspective should take priority or has more validity those written records are more important and more valuable, more authentic than the oral histories of the native communities. I'm so excited that we're seeing these histories talked about more and represented and shared and people having interest in it. But I also think that, you know, like Fort Nisqually did, I think it's super important to seek out the people who can talk about these histories from their perspective in the first person, from the perspective of their families the sense of urgency that we have right now, there's a tendency to speak on behalf of those people, speak on behalf of the underrepresented histories instead of allowing those people to speak for it themselves. Um, I'm hoping this makes sense because it's a, it's a big kind of philosophical conversation I'm having in my own work of seeing this sense of urgency, which is exciting, but also seeing people kind of trip to get to what they see as a finish line when I think it's a much longer, probably never ending project that we're all undertaking together. You know, from my perspective, I think that non-native um, perspective on just native history in general is changing, but it's got a long way to go. Um, I'm glad to see there's a lot of openness towards understanding and hearing our perspective, uh, but it's still, even when it is, we get a chance to tell our story the non-native bias still seems to have the, the narrative uh, when it comes to what is actually being taught. And so uh, I, I definitely see that we're going in the right direction, but we still got a long way to go. With that said, you know, even with the treaty wars, people want to know what happened and they want to be able to teach it, but do they have the, the stomach for what they're about to hear and then have that the courage to teach now this new, knowledge that you have about the history. The truth of uh, like the treaty wars was that women and children were murdered in cold blood, undefended, you know, they were, they were running. They were uh, heading towards the, the woods for safety and they were gunned down for, for sport. You know, it, are you willing to teach that? Are you willing to make that part of your curriculum? So yes, the, 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 the wokeness that is happening is great, but if you're not gonna use the information we give you, what's the point? A lot of times when I present information, 
I, I struggle with trying to help people get into a mindset for what was going on at the time things happened. So putting things in context are very important. When we're talking, th this period of time we're talking about for the, the Indian Wars that happened around the signing of the treaty, there was still policy in America that had bounties on bringing in scalps of, of, of Native Americans. That, that was still a practice across this country. So yes, a scalp for a child and a woman was less than the scalp for a man, but they all had different levels that, that were available. So those things were part of what influenced the mindset of the people at the time. Yeah, bad stuff happened and and it we just kind of worked through that and, and continue to hope that there's a promise. So the, the, the reality was that the government never strayed very far from their ultimate purpose, which was to assimilate the Indian culture, to remove that. So everything that and others have talked about as far as the impact on our culture and what was taken away was part of that reaction to that policy and the practice of removing the knowledge of that history and culture as much as possible. So it's important more, more than ever for us to try and retrieve that, document it, bring it forward and, and share it. And people are anxious to hear it. They want to know the missing pieces of information now that has been withheld. I think that we're at a point in, in time where people are a lot more uh, wanting to know the truth and and not just continue on the way we always have. So we're at a good place right now, although some of it's not stuff you want to hear, but, but it's part of the truth. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us monthly as we continue the conversation among diverse communities impacted by the treaty war and its aftermath. To learn more about the Puget Sound Treaty War, visit our tribal partner websites and fortnessqually.org, where you can watch our four-part panel series on the conflict. This podcast is generously supported by the Tacoma Historic Preservation Office and the Tacoma Arts Commission. Music by Vincent Johnson, Nooksack Lummy, and Nishani Johnson, Jamestown Squalum Lummy.